As I said earlier, Pastor Kendall is uh, at a conference, getting some good R&R time. And he's asked if I would fill in this morning, so I will. It'll be apparent up front that I'm not Pastor Kendall. (laughs) Are we not, I know I've said this before, but are we not gifted with a pastor? It's a gift. I can say this because he's not here. You can't say anything to him, all right? We are gifted with our pastor who is able to present the truth, the word of God, in the way that he does, in a way that, as a young man, uh, you, you just don't see that these days. You just don't see that. And I'm very thankful for him, and I hope he feels appreciated, because I'm very appreciative. So let me, uh, let me read the, the verses I picked this morning, and then we can pray and then get started. This is the word of the Lord. Now, while Paul, this is uh, 1716, starting at, at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand, by by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives us all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. 
Being then God's offspring, we ought to think, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed among who were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him, with them. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a big chunk of your word, and I just ask, Lord, that um, you would be here in your word. Father, that uh, I am so thankful that uh, it is your word that has the power and not the deliverer of your word. I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be open, that our minds would be opened, that would be, we would be softened to hear whatever truth we could glean. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we get started with the text at hand... I thought I'd give an overview of uh, what leads us up to verse 16. How Paul ends up at Mars Hill, as the Romans called it. So Paul has been released from prison. He's on his second missionary trip. And as we see in, in 17.2, which we did not read, it says that Paul's custom, anytime he went to a new town, Paul's custom was to enter that town and to first go to the synagogue of that town and reason from Scripture about the Messiah. Understand, and I like to say this, when he went to reason about Christ, the Messiah, he was using the Old Testament. He was proving the lordship of Christ from the Old Testament. And I think that is just phenomenal. I love that. Now, the Jews in Thessalonica gathered some thugs, is the only thing I could call them. They were thugs. Because they didn't like Paul going around preaching the gospel in their synagogue. So they gathered some thugs together and they drove Paul out of town to Berea. So in Berea, in the synagogue, what did he do first? He went into the synagogue. It's a new town, a new synagogue. And Luke, who's the writer of Acts, records that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonican Jews because the Bereans received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Paul is commending the Jews at Berea 
for holding him accountable to the word. He wasn't, he wasn't put off by the fact that they were going to scriptures to see if what he was indeed saying was true. He's like, these guys are more noble than the rest of them. I think that's awesome. So the Jews at Thessalonica hear that Paul is now in Berea. So they're still not happy that he's going around spreading this word. So they send this same group of thugs to Berea to stir things up. And stir things up they did. So the Bereans, the brothers in Berea, sent Paul away for his safety. And Paul left, leaving behind Silas and Timothy. And here's where we pick up in verse 16, where Paul enters Athens. So what I'm going to do is, is I'm basically going to go verse by verse. This is really more of a... I, I wish I had the gift of, of Kindle, because he really does. He is able to present in a, in a wonderful way. And I, I don't have that gift. I'm not being... Uh, self-deprecating or anything. I'm just saying that I don't have what, what Kendall has. So what I'm basically going to do is I'm going to be going through what I do for Bible study. And I'm going to go through and I'm going to hit the highlights and the words that uh, I was going to say that, you know, I have nothing against devotions. You know, there's some really awesome devotions that are out there that gets us in the Word, that bring, highlights the things in the Word, and they're awesome. But I think what we lose if all we do is just those kinds of things is we lose the going through the word itself and then diving in and taking those words that we come across and we may not understand them, we may not have heard of them, and we do our own research and we find out, well, what does that mean? And we find out a lot of times that it's sometimes not what we thought it meant. So that's what we're going to be doing this morning. So hopefully I can keep you awake long enough. So starting in Acts 17, 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, now the them in here is Silas and Timothy because they remained in Berea. Paul's spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And I thought provoked. I wondered what that meant. Does it, does it mean the same thing that we think of when it's provoked? And what I found was, was provoke can sometimes be a positive thing and it can sometimes be a negative thing. Well, it's a negative thing here. It's not a positive thing. You can't say that Paul was thrilled to see all these idols as he walked into to, uh, Athens. So the negative connotation of provoked here is to be or become incited or stirred up in one's emotions, feelings, or reactions. Then Acts 17, 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Again, reason comes up. What does reason mean? 
And the, the sense of reasoned in this context is that it's more of a formal way of speaking. It's not just common conversation language that you and I would have, at least in the synagogue. But also, it's, it's not just Paul standing on a stump somewhere and preaching at the people in Athens. He's not just speaking to the people in Athens. He's having dialogue with them. He's going back and forth with them. And understand also that this is different now. Beforehand, he's been preaching in the synagogues where there are Jews, of which he was the chief Jew. He was a a Pharisee of Pharisees, as he liked to say. But now... He's, now that he's in the synagogue, he's still doing the same thing, but now he's talking to people in the marketplace, just normal, normal Joes like you and me in the marketplace, just going around, having conversation with them, using scripture as well to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now these devout persons that he's talking about are God-fearing Gentiles. They're not Jews. They're God-fearing Gentiles. And they are a part of the church there. So he's, he's covering the whole gamut. Now 17.18 says that some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign and divinities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, the Epicureans, and boy, when I'm studying, I can go off on tangents so easily. And the Epicureans was so, so broad. And there was so much good detail. And I I could have really taken off on that. But we won't do that. We're We're going to do a highlight of this whole thing. So this is what the Epicureans did. This is what they believed. They followed the teachings of Epicurus, which makes sense who believe that human beings are merely material objects produced by chance combinations of atoms, small, indestructible material pieces, and who had taught practical ways of achieving a pleasant life through moderate behavior and stable human relationships. Now that's pretty bland if you ask me, because the other stuff that I read was pretty, pretty juicy. The Stoics also emphasize moderate living, but they believe that there is an ultimate purpose in the world. This purposefulness is established by an all-pervading substance called logos, or reason. However, like Epicureans, Stoics were materialists, believing all things to be made of matter, including humans, the divine, and the logos, which they sometimes treated as, as God. Now, does, 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 do either one of these sound familiar to you at all? I mean, the Darwinian evolution that we've, we've had in, in so, for so long, uh, that everything is just material. So, Solomon was right when he wrote in Ecclesiastes, What has been 
is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is, nev- there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It is already, it has been already in the ages before us. So there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing. This is way back, way back that Solomon wrote this. And the Epicureans and the Stoics in that time, in that culture, they promoted the same thing. It's over and over again. In our own culture, in our own time, it's the same thing. It's just dressed up differently. So when he was talking about uh, the Athenians, the philosophers, they said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. What does this babbler wish to say? I thought, well, what's babbler mean? I mean, obviously it's derogatory. They're calling him a babbler. And it basically was a, a prerogative imagery of person whose communication lacks sophistication and seems to pick up scraps of information here and there. Now, I kind of found myself in that. <laughs> I could be a babbler. I like to pick up scraps of information here and there. I don't have much sophistication. But what they're saying basically is they're, they're just dissing Paul. And they're like, this man is nothing. He doesn't have our education. Because you know, Athens was, a, was the center of sophisticated education, intellect, and, and political uh, life. And so they were a cut above. They were the elite, if you will. So in Acts 17, 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? Now the Areopagus is the Athenian court. That's where the Athenian court presided. And... uh, when it says they took him and they brought him, it was uh, somewhat of a forceful nature. It wasn't like they just invited the guy and said, hey, would you mind joining us? No, they literally put hands on him and brought him along, if you will. Then in verse 20, it says, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. What an opportunity. This has just been placed in Paul's lap. That someone is there to, to question and to ask about these things. How often do you have that opportunity? When they go up and they, well, tell us about Jesus. We want to know about these things. I've never had it happen. I think it's pretty cool. So 1721 says, now... All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This reminds me of uh, 2 Timothy 3.7 where it says, Always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of truth. They love just sitting around and talking about these high and mighty things. That was their, I mean, they didn't sit down and watch TV every night. They gathered together and they exchanged ideas and they loved the new stuff. So in 22, 
So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. Now what's interesting about this word religious is when I was going through the different uh, versions of the Bible, the King James Version says superstitious. And I thought, well, that's odd. So, of course, I had to go down that rabbit trail because I didn't understand why. And as far as I could tell with the, the, ver- the versions that I have, of all the versions, the King James, all the different versions of the King James translated that, that word religious as superstitious. So I look it up in the Greek, and sure enough, in the Greek, the derogatory meaning of religious can mean superstitious. And I can see where the King James would get that. But in all the lexicons that I have and that I looked at, showing the Greek, showing the meaning of that Greek, it points to being devoutly religious. But of course, in this case, it's being religious with false gods. In 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 23, it says, this is Paul speaking, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. The reason I put that in there is, Here is Paul in the midst of pagans who are worshiping all these idols that are outside. All of them have different names. This is the God to this. This is the God to this. This is the God to that. And Paul comes in and is just riled up. And he can't believe how audacious it is that all these these idols are here in the midst when he holds the truth. So here he's willing to enter into that kind of atmosphere and he becomes, if you will, with the Athenians. He comes to their level, not negating the truth, not setting aside the truth, but presenting the truth. So Paul says... In 23, for as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now does that sound familiar? Is there a, is there a word, somewhere in the word that, you, that reminds you of an unknown God? And that reminded me of Jesus and the woman at the well. Jesus told the woman at the well, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. 
So in verse 24, he begins, he begins his delivery, if you will, of the gospel. And guess where he starts? And Pastor Kendall has talked about this many, many times. He starts in Genesis. The gospel of Jesus Christ is presented and it begins in Genesis. So in verse 24, it says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man, which would be Adam, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Then in 27 it says that they should seek God, perhaps feeling their way toward him and find him. And what that phrase there means that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him is like a blind man groping. Someone who can't see and yet they're, they're groping for something. Yet, Paul continues, he is actually not far from each one of us. And then in 28, he says, for in him, in God, in Christ, we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Now, how many of you have heard that before? In him we live and move and have our being. I can remember the church I used to go to, we had a song. We sang it all the time. This is way back probably in the 90s. In him we live and move and have our being in him. Do you remember that at all? You too? You don't remember that? I'm really showing my age now. Oh my goodness. You remember that? There you go. Thank you, lady in the front row there. Thank you. <laughs> uh, you're going to get a cupcake at, at uh, lunch today, honey. Now, when I came across these, in him we live and move and have our being, and for we are indeed his offspring, these flags started flashing because both of these phrases are actually phrases from heathen. These are heathen poets that Paul is quoting here. And I'm going, why in the world would Paul take poetry from the heathens and put it in here. That just did not make sense to me. So I spent a lot of time on this one. And I do have a little bit here. I found uh, in Scott Oliphant. Have you heard of Scott Oliphant? Anybody? Scott Oliphant. He's uh, at Westminster. So Monty, when Monty gets there, uh, he'll probably have him for an apologetics class. But he wrote this in his uh, Covenantal Apologetics book that summarizes what these two phrases by heathen poets is all about. And I thought it was so good in just a summary that I thought I'd, I would just read this because it's that good. 
So Scott Oliphant, in his book, The Covenantal Apologetics, summarizes the purpose of Paul's quoting the Athenian poets. He starts out by saying, we never come into a context in which our audience is a blank slate. Instead, every person, every audience is a slate that is exhaustively marked from top to bottom with a revelation of God's character. Now, where would he get something like this? Does that sound familiar at all? This is not an accident. In Romans 1, 18 through 23, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. That would include the Athenians. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And that right there in Romans 1 gives us an, an, a, uh, a bird's eye view of Athens when he shows up here. So he's coming here and he's, he starts off at the very beginning. Look, I'm coming in here to these heathen I know they're heathen. I see all these different gods. The gods of birds, gods, all these different animals and everything. But I know one thing. I know that God is already written on their hearts. I know that they already know the one true God. And all I have to do is present the truth to them. And those that are his will answer to that call. So Scott Oliphant, he continues, he says... We can see then why Paul began his Areopagus address with the character of this God whom each person in his audience knew. And we can see that when Paul appealed to the suppression aspect of this audience by quoting the two Greek poets, he had already made clear to whom he was referring in those poems. Both statements, in him we live and move and have our being, and we are indeed his offspring, given Paul's presentation of God's character, referred to the true and the triune God. Paul was telling his listeners what they knew all along, and he used those quotations to make his point abundantly clear. Having wooed them into the orbit of his discourse by using their own poets, Paul then turned their world view their worldview upside down by reminding them that truth that was already suppressed of who the true God is. I thought that was just profound. I love that. And it's the first time I really found anything that had to do that addressed those, those two quotes. So then, now we're at Acts 17, 29. Being then 
God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He again addresses the fact that here's all these idols out front. We can't think of that. If we're made in the image of God, we're not stone, right? We're not gold. We're not silver. We're made in God's image. We're the offspring of God. And he's making this abundantly clear. Verse 30 says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. I wondered what that times of ignorance meant. Was it just some benign time that he was talking about? And that reminded me of Ephesians 4.18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. In Nancy Piercy's book, Finding Truth, which I, by the way, would recommend any of Nancy Piercy's writings. She's, she's phenomenal. She's considered a Francis Schaeffer scholar. And she quotes a, um, she makes a quote of, of someone that she really highly respects. And I can't remember, I didn't write down his name. But it, he said, God cannot be rejected without putting something else in his place. So let's say you're standing around or you know someone who is not living for Christ, who is not loving God, who is not humbled by his presence. He's got someone, he or she has somebody in his place. Somebody or something he has in his place because we all worship something or somebody if we're not worshiping the one true God. So in Acts 17.31, he says, Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And he's again just continuing the truth. He's saying there's a day that there's going to be a judgment. There's a day in the world where there's going to be a righteous man who's already been appointed who has already been raised from the dead, and that day he will judge the world. And in 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some of them mocked. You've got to understand, this is a people who had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is bizarre is they've never heard of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you would be amazed at how many here in America have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So there were those who that even though this is a foreign, foreign teaching to them, they were like, you know what? I want, to know, I want to learn more about this. And so they were open to have him back, to have him back. So in 33, it says, so Paul went out of their midst. Then in 34, it says, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and the woman named Damaris, and others 
with them. So in closing, I just want to say a quote from Jonathan Edwards. And I, of course, if you know Jonathan Edwards at all, his, his, his words have a lot of weight to them in my, in my book. Jonathan Edwards says, If man does not give his highest respect to the God that made him, there will be something else that has the possession of it. Men will either worship the one true God or some idol. It is impossible it should be otherwise. Something will have the heart of man. And that which a man gives his heart to may be called his God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. I pray that there's been something in here. Well, I know it. I know there has because it's been your word. I pray there's something that's been gleaned from your word that we can all take home, that can stir us up, that can stir our hearts up to dive in a little deeper than just devotions and that we would get into your word and that you would bring us before your face, O Lord. Father, thank you for having your hand on our lives. Thank you for showing us that we need to be humbled so that we would rightly respect you and honor you and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.